Hey, if you've got a Bible, open up to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, so good to be with you guys this morning. We're going to continue on in our series through the book of Philippians, and uh, I'm excited about jumping into Philippians 3. When I knew we were going, going to preach this book, I, uh, I strategically massaged the preaching calendar so that I would get Philippians chapter 3, uh, thinking, man, I would love to preach Philippians 3. It's sort of the Mount Everest of Philippians, and I was thinking about all the ways I was excited about doing that until I landed this week to prepare it, and I'm like, why did I do this to myself? Uh, this is an amazing passage that's beautiful, complex, uh, inspiring, but also really convicting. And so um, I'm looking forward to jumping in it today. But, uh, but I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 14. That'll be kind of where we're uh, focusing on today, 1 through 14. The words will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. Uh, I'll, I'll read this passage, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1, says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make this my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider to have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would hold up our minds. I pray that you would focus us in. I pray that you would enamor us with something more beautiful um, than we could ever choose for ourselves, and that is to fix ourselves on your son, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, um, would you do something in this room to help us travel upstream, to travel uh, in a way that's not normative to us and where you're taking us in this passage? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us minds to understand? And would you give us hearts to obey everything that you're putting before us in this passage? Jesus, you promise to accomplish your good work in us. And I pray you'd have your way in this next 30 minutes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, when I was 17 years old, I worked a summer job uh, in light construction. I say light construction because I want to say construction because it sounds really big and tough, but it was really just light construction. Uh, I worked for a guy who owned this business that uh, crafted custom 
screen doors and screen windows sort of on site and did installations. And so it was just screen doors and screen windows, but it makes me feel like I did something, you know? Um, but I worked, I worked with Summer for this guy, and he was, um, he was a really embittered, calloused over, blue-collar guy. He'd been doing uh, stuff like this his whole life, you know, worked for everything he got. And he, uh, every day at work, he always had little short lines he would say to me that, like, was like, man, you are just a joy to work for, you know? Like, he was the kind of guy who would never answer your questions directly. So, you, you know, I was learning the craft, learning the trade of making these screen doors and windows, and I would say, okay, you to do this one right? And he goes, I don't know, go see if it works. Okay, all right, I'll do it. Uh, he goes, and I would ask him, you know, at the beginning of the day, how many jobs do we have today? You'll know when we're done. You are a pleasure to work for, sir. Uh, That's how I'd always feel. He'd also, in addition to that, typically on a day-to-day basis, he would have this little proverbial saying he would give me, this wisdom that he thought he would offer up to me that, you know, would, would change my life as a 17-year-old. And they were all these kind of bizarre things that just happened upon him that he felt like was the most brilliant thing anyone had ever heard. And so I'll never forget one day, we were up on the roofs of this new neighborhood being built up in Edmond in these massive, beautiful homes, and uh, we're up there, and we're sweating it out in the, in the heat of the day, and he, uh, he calls over to me on the other side of the roof, and he says, hey, Chad. I said, yeah. He said, what's a rich man when he dies? And I was like, I have no idea where this is going, you know? I said, I don't know. He says, a rich man when he dies, He's dead. And I go, are you okay? <laughs> like, that is a really dark thing to say, you know? And I'm thinking, just do your job and just get home, you know? Like, uh, and, and later on that day, we're driving home. And he goes, that was a crazy thing to say, but here's, here's what I meant. And I did not see this coming. Like, I had no idea he was about to, like, make sense of that statement. But what he said is really profound. He said, you know, I, I shouldn't have said that earlier. It was, it was a dark thing to say, but what I meant was all of us are looking in life for something other than Jesus to save us. For some people, it's houses. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's their career. For some people, it's their family. All of us are looking for something other than Jesus. And I sat there going, if that's what you meant by that, you could have just said that, you know? Uh, but he felt like he was going to have this jujitsu proverb that he was going to lay down on me and I had to read between the lines. And, and, but here's what's crazy, 17 years old, and I've thought about that over and over again through my life, how all of us consistently looking to something other than Jesus to save us or to give us a sense of ourself. And so you think about if you've read the book or heard of the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, this is the theme, theme of that book. He, it's a book about, it's kind of a bizarre uh, uh, idea for a book, but it's about a, a, a demon, a high-ranking demon named Screwtape, and he's got this protege, this young tra- demon in training named Wormwood, and he's training him in all these ways to keep Christians stunted or to keep Christians deceived or to keep Christians distracted from really pursuing life in Christ. And his main strategy of doing all of this is exactly what my boss said that day. He says, what I want you to do is keep Christians in this mentality of what he calls Christianity and. Christianity and. And so the whole idea is that what we want to do is we want to keep Christians' minds off of Jesus and just make it about religious exercise plus. So, so that the whole, the, whole, the whole argument would be Jesus, let's convince them that Jesus isn't enough to satisfy their life. He's not enough to give them confidence and comfort before God. He's not enough um, to, to make sense of their life down here that what they need is Jesus. That's fine and good, but it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus and, right? And so we're gonna fill our lives up, fill in the gaps where Jesus isn't enough to meet us. And so that's true in our day too, isn't it? 
that many of us, even who call ourselves Christians and would be followers of Jesus, we look to Jesus and we go, yeah, I need you. You're a really big deal. I recognize who you are as the son of God who accomplished all things for me. But I also really love money. So it's Jesus and money. But I also really love houses and bigger houses. And so it's Jesus plus my, my sort of living arrangements. I also love my career. So it's Jesus plus career. It's Jesus plus a spouse. Or it's Jesus plus my family and, and kids just the way I want them. Or it's Jesus plus my body image. Or it's Jesus plus the approval of others. Or it's Jesus, right? You see what I'm saying? You, we're going, it could be anything. Jesus plus morals. That, that to, to have get a sense of myself, a sense of life, I need Jesus and I need my traditional values, you know? And so we're, we're looking to something other than Jesus to fill in the gaps. This is, this is the struggle for Christians everywhere, across all times, across all places. We think much of Jesus, but we also think much of something else in other places, and we go, Jesus, and. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing about in this passage. He's writing to warn us against the plus one mentality. He's writing to warn us against this kind of Jesus and mentality. And there's three moves in this passage, and they'll shape our time together. Three things I want us to see. The first is that Paul's just going to call it out. He's just going to call it out for what it is, and he's going to show us the folly of the Jesus and mentality. The second thing he's going to do is he's going to show us the surpassing greatness, the surpassing greatness of just Jesus. He's going to bring it down to a pure and simple devotion to Jesus, the surpassing greatness of just Jesus. And then lastly, He's going to call us forward in a gospel march. So the first thing, let's get to it. In, in the first couple of verses, he shows us the folly. He shows us the folly of the Jesus and mentality. Look at verse one. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And to write these same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. So I, I love the way Paul starts this chapter because it's a, remember, a reminder of where he's at when he writes this letter. He's in a Roman prison cell under persecution for preaching the name of Jesus. And so he writes, hey, rejoice, guys. So it's an amazing thing to think of prisoner for the Lord is writing about rejoicing. And then he says, it's actually no trouble for me to write this letter to you. Wait, you're in persecution for preaching the name of Jesus apart from the, the orders of Caesar in Rome, and you're saying this is no trouble for you. Okay, that's interesting. He says, it's actually safe for you that I'm writing this letter. Okay, like again, Paul is just like a man on a mission in this letter, and I love his mentality all throughout. But look at the warning he gives them, starting in verse two, against the Jesus and mentality. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, those, those don't sound like uh, hyper-offensive sort of names uh, in our day, but this was like first century Middle Eastern throwdown when he's sort of naming these things. Like he's, he's calling out these guys in the most offensive way he possibly could as an apostle of the church. He's saying, look out for these guys because they're teaching something that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. And so who he's talking about looking out for are these people. In, in his day, they were called the Judaizers. And the whole book of Galatians is about this Judaizer controversy. This was a group of Jewish converts to Christianity who went around telling Gentiles, non-Jewish people who converted to Christianity, that if they really wanted security with God, then they were going to need Jesus. That's fine and well, but they would also need adherence to Jewish law. They would need Jesus plus plus uh, uh, the Mosaic Covenant. So they would need to take the sign of circumcision. They would need to obey the Sabbath. They would need to take on the dietary laws. They would, they would need to obey the entire Old Testament law. You needed Jesus 
but you also needed perfect religion. And so he's calling them dogs. He's calling them mutilators of the flesh. He's calling them evildoers because they're distracting from a Jesus-only mentality of saying Jesus and. And he's saying, watch out for these kind of people because it's confusing and it's gonna sound really religiously devout. It's gonna sound put together. It's gonna sound intensely reverent to God, but they're distracting from God's son alone. And so Paul says, just to show you how foolish this mindset is, he then goes on in verse five to give us his own resume. He says, though I myself have reason to have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day, a part of the people of Israel, a part of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, religious elite, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so you read down through that and you're going, okay, Paul, those are a bunch of great accomplishments. Good for you. You're from the right family. You're from the right tribe. You're from the right place. You've done the right things. You've passed religious you know, excellence. Good for you. But if you're like me, you read down through that and you go, but who cares? And if Paul were standing right here as he's understand, helping us understand this letter, he would respond going, that's exactly the point. Who cares? None of that matters. It is completely ignorant. It's completely foolish to think that you can present before the throne of God anything other for your case with him than the son of God in all his perfections. Nothing stands before God for our case with him or our life with him other than Jesus Christ, his own son, crucified and risen from the dead. It's as if Paul would say, you know what, God? Jesus is unbelievable. He's amazing. But I was from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? You know what, God? Jesus is unbelievable. But you know what? I was circumcised on the eighth day. Don't you want me in? I don't see your point, Paul. Yeah, but God, Jesus is unbelievable. But when it comes to the Old Testament law, I'm not even sure I even needed Jesus because I'm blameless. You see, when it's Jesus and, it makes less of Jesus and it makes a fool of God. Jesus and just doesn't make sense. There's nothing that makes sense about presenting to God something other than what he's given for right standing with him. This is the argument he's making. So stepping back from the text for a second, all of us can see this, all of us can realize this, but the more honest and painful look at this passage is that you and I spend most of our time, more than we want to admit, living life with a Jesus and mentality. So on the one hand, we would go, yes, Paul, you're right. It's Jesus only, Christ alone, grace alone, through faith alone, all that's right. But the trajectory of our life often shows that it's Jesus and with us, right? We're looking to something other than Jesus to, to fill in the gaps, to hold us together, to make us feel better about ourselves, to give us confidence before God, to really make sure our needs are met. And so it, it varies around the room, right? Things I mentioned in the beginning. For some of you, it's Jesus and your job. Jesus and your dream family scenario, Jesus and, and money, Jesus and body image, Jesus and approval, Jesus and your education, Jesus, it's Jesus and, right, to really make sure my needs are met. Jesus is great, but Jesus and. And so if we're going to really take following Jesus seriously, it's going to be important that we identify what's our plus one, like what is your plus one? What's the other thing that you're looking to other than Jesus to make sure that your needs are all met. So I've got a few questions that I ask myself this week 
to help me sort of identify this and maybe they'll be helpful for you. So here's the first one. If you, were to, if you were to brag about yourself, like if for a second, if it would be okay and you would brag about yourself and just kind of take a prideful moment, if you were to brag about yourself, what area of your life would you begin? Where's the area of your life where you, you're really proud of and you want to be noticed there? And even by answering that question, I'm not calling it sinful. It could be morally neutral. It could be even a good thing. But where's the area, if you were to step in and start bragging, where, where would you brag? Here's the next one. On the other side, where in your life do you tend to carry a sense of guilt or find it difficult to receive forgiveness? Where in your life do you tend to carry a sense of guilt or find it difficult to receive forgiveness? One of the interesting things about the idols in our life or the, the things that we look to other than Jesus is they can often be identified either by our by our extreme positive emotions and by our extreme negative emotions, right? Those things that really upset us or those things that really excite us oftentimes show us where we're placing a lot of value, right? Here's another one. This is a surprising one, but it's telling. What is the thing that you consistently find yourself praying about? What is the thing that you find yourself almost obsessively praying about and constantly asking God for? It's crazy to think that actually in our prayers reveals what's really, really important to us that maybe we've been looking to to fill in the gaps where God doesn't, right? What we want God to give us. Here's another one. Where in your life, if you were to lose something or have something or someone taken away from you, it would cause you to lose all sense of security or a sense of self-worth, if you were to lose something and something were to be taken away from you, you would lose all sense of security and self-worth. You see, wherever you find an answer to either all of those questions or any one of those questions, maybe some of those questions didn't really particularly set a nerve with you, but if any one of those questions you found an answer, very likely it's in that place that you don't believe Jesus is enough to satisfy you there and you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus, right? And so we need to identify our plus one because Paul is warning us against this mentality of Jesus and, right? This is the, this is the whole purpose of what's going on in this passage. So he moves here from the foolishness of Jesus and, and then he moves down to the second piece of showing us the surpassing greatness of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse eight. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss as all th- of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. The word rubbish there, if in the original language Greek that Paul would have written this, uh, rubbish is, is actually translated excrement or dung. It's as close as the Bible gets to cussing on this, right? He says, Everything else next to Jesus is crap. And I never thought I'd say that from the pulpit. That's exactly what Paul's saying, though. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. I don't want a life that I can build on my own or define for me a right standing of my own, but I want that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, let's chat for a second. So this week, um, it's actually this passage that made me want to preach uh, this, this chapter. Because I was thinking to myself, getting into Philippians, man, I can't wait to preach Philippians 3, 8 through 11, where Paul just goes crazy about Jesus. He says, it's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it sounds so religiously intense, devout, zealous. It's all these beautiful things. I'm going to make this so hype. I'm going to compel the church that we should just sell everything and go all in on Jesus. That's where I was about a few months ago when we were going to do this. This week, I land on this passage. And I get to this part of my sermon preparation. And I'm trying to think about all the ways I want to tell us about the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And somewhere along yesterday afternoon, I was praying through this passage and Jesus just goes, quit trying to be my salesman. Like, I don't need you to help me out. Like, I can speak for myself. Like I can handle myself. And so all of a sudden I read this passage again and I'm thinking, man, this isn't, just inspiring because what we often want to do and what I often want to do, what I think I was doing when I approached this passage initially was just wanting to approach this passage and saying, let's get rid of everything and count all things as lost for the sake of Jesus. And I wanted to hold on to that at a sentimental level, but not a functional level. Like I wanted just to feel good about that, like feel good about saying big things for Jesus, but not actually work them into my heart to go, what does that actually look like in your life? You know? So I read through this passage again and as inspiring as it is, it's also, when you lay it on your life, massively convicting. And, and here's what I mean. Unless you see your lack of righteousness before God as your greatest problem in this life, unless you see your lack of righteousness before God on your own as your greatest problem in this life, and on the other side, you see what Jesus has done in his death resurrection for your sin, buying you righteousness as your greatest gain than what Paul is saying here. Unless you see that's your biggest problem and Jesus as your greatest gain, then what Paul is saying here makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. If there's any point in your life where Jesus is not the end you're seeking, but you're sprinkling Jesus onto your life in order to get to something else, to say it another way, if Jesus is a means to another end for you, then you're missing the point entirely. I'll do the Jesus thing so I can get the family I want. I'll play the game with Jesus so that I get the job that I want. I'll do the game with Jesus so that I get the life that I want. I'll do the game with Jesus so I can get the approval that I want. I'll, get, I'll do the thing with Jesus so that something else, if there's any place in your life where Jesus is a means to something else, then what you've functionally done is made that something else God. And Jesus is your lucky rabbit's foot to get there. So all of a sudden I step back on this passage and I'm like, man, this is totally different than what I thought I was getting myself into. Like Paul is speaking with a level of centrality on Jesus that quite frankly, it's foreign in my own life. Like there's ways I read what Paul is saying here and I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. 
I count everything else in this life as loss that I could get him. Like I see what he's done. He has, he has conquered my greatest problem and he's achieved for me the greatest end. The, the whole good news of Jesus is not that God gets you something else. It's that God gives you himself. Like he's the prize. If Jesus isn't good news for you, then Christianity is gibberish. Like he's the point. He's the end. He's the thing we're seeking. There's nothing beyond him. He is everything. And Paul's saying, I see that. I want that. And so I count everything as loss. Anything that was to my gain, any life that I would build for myself, anything that I would acquire for myself, any achievements of my family line, any achievements of my, of my religion, of my traditional values, any achievements of, of anything out there, I count it all as loss just so that I can get more of him. I want to know him. He goes on to say powerful things in verse 10. He says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I think all of us want that. But then he says, I don't just want that. I want all of him. I also want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. Paul's saying, I don't just want Jesus in his bright, glorious splendor moments. I want him in every single corner of my life. I want to know him in his resurrection. I want to know him in suffering. I want to know him in death. I just want to know him because there's nothing better. No one does what he does. No one offers me what he offers me. No one is who he is. And so he says, I don't want a righteousness of my own before God. I want the righteousness of Jesus. And so I cash in anything that would even appear that I've got my life together. I just want him. And so to take it a step even further, to apply what Paul is saying here, is he's saying, I want to lay my life on the line such that God, I want to know you to the degree that if there's anything in my life that ever keeps me from knowing deeper love and devotion and place and thrill and pleasure and satisfaction with Jesus, if there's anything in my life that keeps me from that, then you take it. You take it. So if there's any area, anything, at any point, God, that keeps me from knowing Jesus, take it or turn me from it. I just got to have him. So that's real Christianity. And very often what we do is we spend our lives, and this is where I'm so messed up by this today, we spend our lives going, man, Jesus is a great idea. Jesus is a big deal. He helps me feel better about myself. But when it comes to real satisfaction, and it comes to real pleasure in this life, I look other places for that. I look to entertainment. I look to my career. I look to my accomplishments. I look to my family. And none of those things are bad. All of those things are God's good gifts to us. But the gifts were never meant to replace the giver. And so here's the, one of the reasons why we struggle to really enjoy the gifts God gives us, the reason we struggle and we constantly look for more and the reason that we're never satisfied, even though we have been given so many things from God, the reason we're never satisfied is we constantly look to the gifts to be for us what they're never meant to be. We look to them to be God. So the reason you have tension with your spouse very oftentimes is because you're looking to him or to her to satisfy you in ways that only God can. He was meant to do that. Your marriage is supposed to point you to a greater picture of union with Jesus. 
She's not God. He's not God. Never can be and will never satisfy you that way. Money, the same. Your house, the same. Your body image, the same. The approval of others, the same. We're looking to these things to give to us what they can actually never give to us. What only God can. They can't achieve righteousness for you. Only Jesus does that. So he's saying, God, I want to enjoy this world like it's meant to be enjoyed. But I want to treasure you. I want to herald you. I want to be satisfied and pleased and have my deepest pleasures found in you. And so here's what's even scarier about this for me this week. He is speaking about a level of intimacy with Jesus that quite frankly, if I'm honest, it's foreign to me. And so there's a, there's a way in which I want to go, oh, okay, well, that's just the Apostle Paul. Like he's, you know, the Apostle Paul. He wrote like three-fourths of the New Testament. So like he's going to talk about Jesus in a different way than I ever would, right? But we know that God doesn't work that way. He doesn't reserve special things for special people. All of us are on evil, evil playing ground, right? And so he's offering all of himself. He's offering this kind of intimacy that all of us would know this kind of devotion to Jesus that actually saves us. This is, for, this is for the street level person. This is for the pastor. This is for the apostle Paul. This is for everyday disciples of Jesus. This kind of devotion, this kind of intimacy, this kind of, I just want him. Like this is actually where life is found. And I would argue, and I'm about to move on from this point, but I would argue that much of the reason that you and I are bored with God is because we've reduced him to something to sprinkle on our life, to feel better about ourselves than actually making him the thing that informs everything else. That's why certain songs and certain prayers and certain things don't enamor us like they once did. It's because we've reduced it to like icing and not the cake, right? Not the substance. And so for all of us just to breathe for a second, because I know that's really heavy, Paul takes us to the third move of this passage and he calls us forward in a gospel march because I know you're thinking, so what do I do with all that? Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Thank you so much for saying that, Paul. (laughs) Right? Like I feel oddly comforted by you saying that, you know? I haven't already obtained all this. I'm not already perfect, but look at what he says but I press on to make this my own. Those confessions, that desire for Jesus, that devotion to him, that thrill in him, I press on to make all of that my own. Why? This is so massive. This changes everything about the good news of Jesus. Why? Because he has made me his own. So I don't press on to give more of my life to God. So Paul's not saying, I don't press on to lose all things on behalf of gaining more of Jesus. I don't do any of that in order to get God or to have him approve of me or to earn something from him. No, 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 that can't be accomplished. That's what Jesus does. He earns it all. He accomplishes it all. He purchases it all. And so I press on to make all of it my own because he's already made me his own. Like he's given it all. The good news of Jesus is that God gives you himself. And so now he says, well, gosh, if, if you've already made me your own and you've already given all of yourself, then, then I really want to have that in every crevice of my life. I want that to fill all of me up. I, I don't need to look to other things to fill in the gaps. You've made me your own. God has made you his own. 
He's the resource. He's the supply. He's the satisfier. He's the supreme pleasure. I press on to make it my own because, because, not to earn, not to get, but because I already have through Jesus. And so look at what he says in 13, and here's where we'll end. He says, brothers, I don't consider to have made it my own, but I press on toward the goal of the prize. What's the prize? The whole point we've been talking about. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's the end. But notice what he says here. So what do I do? Like, how do I do all of this? I forget what lies behind and I press on toward what lies ahead. Now, this is huge because you've got to recognize again who's saying this. I know that there's some of us in the room that one of the things that's the hitch in your life to pressing on with Jesus is things that lie in your past. Like the thing that like will keep you from stepping across the line, the thing that will keep you from jumping in is you go, yeah, but there's that thing in my past or maybe even there's that thing in my present that's abstracted from him, that is opposed to him, that I still want more than him if I'm honest. That there's that thing I keep turning back around to And that keeps me from stepping all in. I think he's embarrassed of me there. I think he's ashamed of me there. I think he's mad at me there. Like for some of you, the reason that you read your Bible in the morning is so that God won't be mad at you. The reason you pray at mealtime is to get God off your back. And so the reason you're hesitant to do stuff because you really believe deep down things in your past, you're trying to atone for, to get over, to accomplish for. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't remember. He's already made you his own. No strings attached. There's nothing to cover over. There's nothing to make up for. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to to earn back. That's 100% what Jesus did. So what does that mean for us? It means you can actually forget what lies behind. Like when you think Jesus, and then plus I've got to now work on the other side, you're actually making less of Jesus. He purchased all of it. And so again, think about who's saying this. Paul before he was converted to Jesus, was a serial murderer of the church, right? So so a serial murderer of the church now says, forget what lies behind with authority. Okay, so if a serial murderer of the church can have that much confidence in Jesus and that much understanding about what's been purchased for him and that much confidence that the past really doesn't own him anymore, then I think you and I can have that same confidence. Another way to say this, who takes sin more serious, you or God? That's easy, preacher. God does. That's the point. God takes sin way more seriously than we do yet we won't let ourselves off the hook of guilt and shame when he has said, I've already taken you off the hook. I put my son up there. So you can forget what lies behind and press on toward the upward call of the prize in Jesus that he can be for you the thing that fills in all the gaps because that's who he is. Press on to make it your own because he has made you his own. Take yourself off the hook. Jesus was placed there on your behalf. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so a couple of questions and we'll we'll be done today. Where we've drifted away from this Jesus only mindset to Jesus plus. Here's a couple of questions. 
Where in your life have you grown bored with God? Where in your life have you grown bored with God? These are things just to acknowledge, to recognize. These are what we confess and where we seek to forget what lies behind and say, fill me here, meet me here. Here's another one. Where have you made your faith in Jesus more about life maintenance and guilt management rather than knowing and enjoying him? Where have you made your faith in Jesus more about maintaining your life, just holding it together and managing your guilt instead of knowing and enjoying Jesus? The good news of what he's done means you don't have to live with I hope not to lose mentality. You get to live with I only win because that's what resurrection means, right? Where have you made it more about life maintenance and guilt management rather than knowing and enjoying? Here's the last one. Where have you made Jesus an addition to your life rather than the singular passionate pursuit that now informs everything? Where have you made Jesus an addition to your life rather than the singular passionate pursuit that informs everything? That's true Christianity. That's counting the cost and saying, I count everything as rubbish that I might gain him, that I might be found in him, that I might know him, his righteousness, not mine that I would muster up or contrive or create, but I wanna know his righteousness that counts for me I want to know him in suffering. I want to know him in death. I want to know him in resurrection. I want him to fill all my gaps. This is what Paul is calling us to. This is the gospel march. Forget what lies behind. It's been accomplished. Press on.